Welcome to the Turkey Hunter Podcast, the original all-turkey, all-the-time podcast with your co-hosts Andy Galliano and Cameron Weddington. In our weekly podcast, we're going to bring you some wild turkey calling tips like this. From there, we're going to go into, she's aggravated, there's another hen that's challenged her, or she's challenging another hen, she's going to cut an excited yelp. Advice from old pro turkey hunters like this. The turkeys typically don't like, I think, more times than not, to travel in an easterly direction into the sun first thing in the morning, especially after he gets up. It's a blinding thing. It, it, it's just like you. It's hard for you to see into the sun. Mm-hmm. So if I have a choice, I'm going to try to make it so that I'm going to be on the west side in the morning east side in the afternoon of a turkey exciting live hunts like this holy crap they're coming teach you how to cook your bird with advice such as this with some fresh rosemary and garlic and then cool that off and spread that along the inside of that butterflied turkey breast that we've seasoned on both sides wildlife management tips for your property especially with turkeys like this if you look at the type of habitats that turkeys need for nesting and brooding that tends to be habitat that can be managed more successfully with growing season fire than with dormant season fire. And hopefully along the way, we'll get plenty of these. Well, on November the 28th of 1953, I was attached when I popped out of my mom and the baby doctor spanked me on the bottom. I went, oh, and I've been doing it ever since. <laughs> I like that. Thank you for tuning in, and now, for this week's show. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to episode number 419, Wild Turkey Research Updates with Dr. Will Goolsby. And I am your co-host, and the guy who is... Watching grass grow. And I'm your co-host and the guy who, when you hear this, will be on the beach. Yeah, you will be. Gotta say, I'm a wee bit jealous. I've been where you're going and (laughs) it's a pretty awesome place. Have you ever been before? I have not been to Los Cabos. It is pretty interesting. And now it's been years since I've been. It's been 20 plus years since I've been there, but... Just very interesting with the desert right there, and then you got the beach. It's, yeah. it's a cool, cool place. Well, I'm pumped to go. I'm kind of needing a little time away from the computer screen, a little time out, relaxing. So we're excited. Audrey and I are going. We're not taking Josie, which is going to be difficult for her especially, and me. But yeah, being time away is a good thing too. Yes, indeed. Got to have that. 
one-on-one time. Yeah, so it'll be good. We're going down to Cabo and see what Mexico has to offer in that area. So I'm, I'm pretty pumped about it. Yeah, it'll be cool. Well, I highly recommend chartering a boat if it's not astronomical and going out, oh, yeah. you know, 100 yards off the shore and fishing for marlin and sailfish and all Sweet. the stuff you have to go a long way offshore to catch in the U.S. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. What? Your grass is still growing? <laughs> well, yeah, kind of. But the grass that I'm watching grow is in a food plot with a trail camera on it. So I planted... Man, I wish mine would grow. <laughs> yeah, I know. We talked about that last week. But, you know, I planted mine, and I told you guys about this, gosh, two... Has it been two months? It's been... Right at two months ago is when I planted it. And I did not have my spreader. So the seed that I spread, I spread by hand. So there were some patches here and there that didn't have any seed to come up because there was no seed on the ground in those patches. So we, we being my dad and my one of my brothers, spread some seed on a different piece of property that we have leased. And we had a little bit of leftover seed, maybe, oh, I don't know, six or eight pounds. And so I put that in the spreader and spread that this past week. And I'm starting to see it. I mean, it rained like hours after I put it out and it's actually starting to come up already. So I'm, I'm awesome. watching it, watching those gaps, those bare areas in that field get turned green day by day. Well, that's perfect. Yeah, yeah, good deal. Got three wily white-tailed does in that food plot right this very second. <laughs> That's always cool when you can check on them like that. Mm-hmm. I've yep. been getting some pictures of deer and turkeys and stuff. I don't really plan to deer hunt. Got some pretty bucks and stuff on camera, but they're safe for me. I hope they're not safe for me. Hey, come on. <laughs> you are supposed to visit, so if you do come, hopefully you get to whack one or two. I will buy a hunting license and see what I can do. I guess I need to read up on the game laws. What can you kill about four rack bucks a day? I'm pretty sure here you, they just want you to shoot them all. Because like the plan that. to stop CWD is if we kill all of them, they can't spread it anymore. That is very true. It's hard to spread when there's none around to spread it amongst each other. Yeah, I mean, it'd be like, you know, with turkeys, if there is a disease that's a problem, we could just kill all of them, and then that disease won't be an issue anymore for them. Mm-hmm. It's a it's sound fun. management practice. <laughs> nah, I think you can only kill, like, five here in a day. Five bucks in a day? Well, you can uh, shoot three does per day and two bucks, I think. That's uh, not even worth the, the money to buy a license. Yeah, the, the game warden told me you can only shoot, like, 90-something deer per season here, so... <laughs> I don't know how big of a freezer you have, but you might be able to fill it up. Yeah, we better start eating what I've got in there now so we can make some room. <laughs> We're going to be duck hunting. You're going to be deer hunting. You'll probably shoot more than we do. I'll, I'll shoot you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that'd be awesome. I'm loading on them. Yeah. I hope so. That'd be great. <laughs> that's That's something else. Well, cool, yeah. man. I, I hope yeah. I hope you and Audrey have a great time and you, know, you guys travel yeah. safely. I know you're you'll do your part to travel safely, but have you done any research to see what the area outside of town is like as far as if it's safe or not? I'm gonna be honest, as my research 
has gone on this. I'm in the finance department and the show up on Sunday to fly out department. Okay. Perfect. So, <laughs> I have no idea. You're on a need to know basis and you don't need to know. Yeah, except that's it. Write the check. I'm show up. I'm going to have a smile on my face and I'm going to have a good time. That's all I know. There you go. There you go. Well, that's if, pretty much how it rolls. If you do decide to try to go and explore and go up into the, the mountains and the desert there, be sure to ask around if it's yeah. safe or not before you go out and do that. But Yeah, absolutely. That was one thing we did. It was kind of cool. Yeah, that's cool. We'll we'll have to check that out. I'm, I'm stoked about it. I think it's going to be a big time and even more impressive is how close we're getting to turkey season man uh, this week we're 103 out but next week we're gonna be in double digits before you and i are turkey hunting that's crazy is that not nuts yeah we're at 126 10 21 and 41 for alabama wow. closing in quick man and, and heck of a show this week heck of a show i'm telling you yeah i mean just really cool because we had dr ghouls on about this time last year, I would say, maybe earlier in the year last year. And he told us about all of these projects that were coming up. And we're going to pretty much go through them and give you a one-year update on what's going on. <laughs> yeah, this is good stuff. You know, these these kind of shows you and I really geek out on, and I know a lot of the listeners do as well. And we tried to get Dr. Goolsby on not long after the article that caused such the stir and the buzz on social media was released. And he said, no, 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 no. It's too early. Let me dig in a little bit deeper, get some more of the results in, do some research, study on it. And yes, I'll be glad to come on, but just give it a little time. So I'm proud at how well you and I waited. You know, we we did pretty good. good. We didn't call him and aggravate him every single day. Is today the day? Hey, Will, is today the day? (laughs) Will, how about today? Can you come on today? Come on, Will. Come on, come on. So We we did good at that. Yeah. I think we did a fine job. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you want to hop in here and and go for this one? It's a great show. Yeah, it's a... Folks are going to find it real interesting. It's a good long one, too, so it's going to be a lot of information, and I think you guys will enjoy it, so let's do it. All right. See you guys on the other side. Hey guys, Cameron and I are glad to tell you that we have on the phone with us today, Dr. Will Goolsby, and I can't really say where he is because I just can't even mention the word, but (laughs) he is a assistant professor and works in the wildlife ecology, basically wildlife management department over at a university that's in southeast alabama that (laughs) is a huge rivalry of of mine but he's really not even i mean he gets a paycheck from from that place but he's really just not even a fan of their football team he's a a fan (laughs) of one across the state line so uh, will thank you for taking time to join us and you know we're i'm i'm trying to be upbeat and positive because I've seen a, a little bit of the news, I guess, a, a, an article from the study that you guys have this ongoing about mm-hmm. nesting and poult survival and all that fun stuff. And, you know, so we're going to talk about some of that stuff today, but we'll start off on a positive note and just say it's great to have you today. Thanks for taking time out of your schedule and coming <laughs> on with us. And how is everything going in your world? 
Things are going well, Andy, and I appreciate you uh, taking the time to circle back and share some kind words with me after that introduction. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but you know, one thing, one thing that Alabama and Auburn do have in common this year is disappointing football season. Yeah. But the, the threshold for a disappointing season at Alabama is a little bit different than, than the one at Auburn right now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. So, it's all good, you know that, uh, and and it's not just what you guys do in your department. That is a fantastic Auburn is a fantastic university, and you know just a beautiful campus. Man, that's a pretty part of the world down there, and in, in that Auburn and Columbus, Georgia area, that's just beautiful countryside. And so, yeah, I, I can say well, the I name. You saying that? Yeah, <laughs> I, I can say some a lot of good things about about that place down right there. right but well i appreciate you saying that because i know it probably pains you and may may get you uninvited from thanksgiving dinner but well it'll be all right i can <laughs> i can manage somehow and fortunately none of my family listens to this because no one in the family turkey hunts so <laughs> okay we can talk about them later too and they'll never hear it <laughs> hey, hey, that's good forget, to know don't, don't forget i'm here and i've waited 27 years to say this to an auburn and alabama fan but go vols <laughs> hey hey you know what you guys deserve it this year <laughs> it's it's been almost three decades let me have this moment you know you, think... you guys have paid your dues over the past decade especially it's a fact well, so here's here's something very interesting, though. In the past seven days, the record for our football teams are all the same. Yeah, <laughs> sadly true. <laughs> we, we'll just start it out like this. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the Loser Podcast. <laughs> and today from Auburn University, we have Dr. Will Goolsby, and here in Birmingham, Alabama, Andy Galliano, who supports the Crimson Tide, and up in West Tennessee, we have Cameron Weddington, who supports the Tennessee Vols. So we're going to cry in our soup today. <laughs> there you go. SEC, it just means more. <laughs> Especially the turkey hunting, though. Let's just talk about turkey hunting, and we'll feel yes. better. Yeah. There you go. Let's go back to but maybe, maybe not in light of this year's. Maybe not in light of this year's results uh, from our work, but still. Well, lead us in on that. So for, you know, it's been, what, a little over a year, I think, since we had you on the show to talk about the yes. upcoming study that you guys were mm -hmm. about to start with some. Studies. Yeah, studies, that's for sure. With some, some help from the NWTF and some help from Turkeys for Tomorrow and, yep. you know, many other different sources and grants and that kind of stuff, but right. let just kind of give us the the thirty thousand foot overview on those. I guess we talked about two different studies that that you guys had mm -hmm. coming up. So right. let's talk about those a little bit and kind of fill us in from then till now. Yeah, sure. We just completed our first you know uh, season of field work towards the end of summer and backing up, you know, from there, you know, this project initially started through conversations with the Alabama Wildlife Federation and Turkeys for Tomorrow. And as things started to get off the ground, as you mentioned, Andy, you know, other partners came on board, including the the NWTF, Alpha came on board as well. And on 
you know, we're co- collaborating with Mike Chamberlain too from UGA. He's he's kind of doing the public land side of things that I'll talk about in just a minute. And um, he's getting some significant help from some Alabama Department of Conservation and Natural Resources biologists with uh, those aspects of the field work. But when we started our field work last year, you know, we started around January with turkey capture. Um, Mike had some leftover GPS transmitters from a previous study that um, he was gracious enough to loan us. And the turkey capture didn't go quite as planned last year on our primary study site. But thankfully, um, we had some other birds tagged as part of a study that one of my colleagues, Dr. Steve Ditchkoff, has going on um, kind of in the uh, down around the Union Springs, Alabama area, kind of kind of east, southeast Alabama. Mm-hmm. And we were able to monitor the reproduction in those birds as well. So we ended up monitoring um, reproductive activity for 20 hens in Alabama last season. And then in addition to that, between the gobble recording units, that we put out on our end and Mike put out on his end. We had about 80 of those deployed across the state, looking at a variety of things uh, from, you know, just gobbling chronology, basically, you know, winter birds starting to gobble, when are they peaking in terms of their gobbling frequency from north to south Alabama? How does that differ between public and private lands? And then eventually we'll also look at those data to see how using gobbling as an index of turkey abundance um, is influenced by landscape and habitat factors as well. And then we also had an aspect of the study where we were collecting hunter harvested birds. I can't remember the exact final number, but it was somewhere around 400 total birds that we were able to recover from hunters last spring, um, represented about, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 or 70, I think it was 70 something percent of the counties in Alabama. So we had really good geographic representation. And all of those birds were necropsied, you know, basically the animal version of an autopsy. And we collected a number of data points on each of those birds. We're also um, going through the process right now of doing some histological, some microscopic analyses of their testes to look at fertility rates of each of these birds and, you know, what their likely contribution to reproduction is. That's kind of the objective with that aspect of the, of the project. And then we're also preparing to do a bunch of disease testing on these birds to look at the prevalence and geographic distribution of various significant turkey diseases throughout the state. So that's, y'all got a lot going on. So y'all are studying so many different aspects. Did you, when you were like a kid, did you think one day I want to have turkey testes under a microscope is that a goal you know i've been asked the same question and uh but not about turkey testes but about some weird things that i've ended up doing throughout my career in wildlife ecology and management and then probably the funniest one was um there was a guy that well I'll, i'll just mention who it was so Jeff Foxworthy got involved with our research program when I was at the University of Georgia doing my graduate work, oh, and he awesome. came to a to a research fundraiser event that we had there. And uh, as part of that, I got up and shared some of the work that I was doing at the time on trying to estimate uh, coyote abundance throughout the southeast in relation to predation on fawns. That was a project that I worked on for my PhD. And the way that we did that is we were doing um, we were doing fecal genotyping, which means basically you're doing genetic analysis of coyote scat. And he got up and spoke a little bit at the fundraiser and made fun of me for, um, for that aspect of my, my graduate work and said, you know, he said something along the lines of, you know, there's two proud parents out there thinking that they spent $250,000 for their, 
their son to play in coyote poop. <laughs> <laughs> so now, now they have two reasons to be proud of me. You know, that one. And then also that I'm, I'm playing with turkey nuts now. But. <laughs> oh goodness. What? Do something you love. They said. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, well, we do appreciate the research. I'm just making a joke. That, that will actually be fascinating to see the results of that portion. Yeah. Um, so just to give you a little bit more detail on that. Um, so there's there's been a, only a couple of studies ever looking at fertility rates in male turkeys. And there was a there's a yeah. one in Missouri. Uh, that was conducted in the 1960s, and then there was one um, conducted by Texas Parks and Wildlife in Texas, obviously, working with Rios, um, and that one was back in the early 1990s. And those studies had some limitations. I mean, particularly like with the Missouri study, what they were primarily interested in is, you know, what's the relative likelihood of jakes contributing to breeding. And so yeah. their study was was highly focused on jakes, a relatively limited sample size. And there were some sample size issues, except during the first year of the Texas study as well. But they they did establish some baseline parameters as far as like the general, they, they saw trends in the general coloration or pigmentation of the testes. And then also the mass of the testes that were correlated with the reproductive capabilities of each individual bird. And we're trying to kind of do the same thing, up those sample sizes a little. But then we're also working with a reproductive specialist here on campus. This is well outside of my wheelhouse. But what she's helping us do is um, we have this whole process where we'll preserve the testes. And then we essentially use a microtome, which is just a machine that cuts these really thin sections, which you can then fix and attach to a microscope slide. And then we can examine them under the microscope. And so we're not just seeing those gross changes in weight or pigmentation, but we can actually start to quantify, you know, the level of spermatogenesis, which just means sperm creation that each of these birds have. And more importantly, and I think what really makes this aspect of the study interesting is that all of our hunters that are submitting birds are completing a survey that we developed for them in a, um, online web application so we also have behavioral data on each of those birds to see how they were acting you know were they alone and strutting and, came, and coming to a strutter decoy or were they you know in a group with a couple other toms and they were the only strutter maybe they weren't the strutter you know all those types of things where we can hopefully start to see some trends and linking behavior with actual fertility mm -hmm. and so i think it'll be interesting you know going forward to start to shed some light on you know, these, these social hierarchy dynamics and how they play a role in turkey reproduction and, and how that even, you know, affects fertility and which birds are capable of reproducing. Yeah, this that's all just extremely fascinating to me. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of sitting here thinking, okay, what can this do for us as hunters, lovers of wild turkey, and conservationists just you know, armchair conservationists. Well, I can't right. really say that because we're all active conservationists. We buy hunting licenses. So right. without money, we can do none of this happens. None of what you do mm -hmm. happens or any of the other biologists or scientists around. So, yeah, but outside of the, the obvious physical differences between a Jake and any mature, what we, what we've always called a mature long beard, any, any turkey two years old and up, how can this help us? I mean, obviously we could say, hey, let's, you know, there's an issue shooting jakes because mm -hmm. they are sexually viable 
or there's not an issue shooting Jakes because their first year they're not sexually viable. But outside of that, what other benefits can we, I guess, glean or information can we glean from this study that yeah. you're doing? Yeah, that's yeah, that's a good question on this aspect of the study. And my answer to that would be that you know sometimes the research that we do doesn't necessarily directly translate into a management action. But sometimes in cases like this one, we need to have we need to have sufficient information on whether or not a proposed mechanism, in this case, you know, differences in fertility between males, can be influencing the lack of reproductive success that we're seeing or not before we take further steps to address that issue. Does that make sense? Yes. And so so to, to restate that, if we do find that there is significant variation among two-year-olds or older birds in terms of their fertility, well, then that tells us something about, you know, what birds we harvest matters. Or, you know, conversely, if we don't find many differences, well, then that also tells us that, you know, killing a certain bird is not as likely to totally upend the process. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's a process of elimination or confirmation, conversely, right, before we can take those further steps and implement a management action, which we can then monitor to see how it affects the population. Yeah. We've had Dr. Chamberlain on before, and he is at least, you know, he, he says the way he operates is if two come in and one's the strutter and one's not, he's going to shoot the not strutting bird. Right. So I guess y'all through this may be able to confirm that notion that maybe that's a good idea for land managers to do because yeah. I don't, I don't one, care <laughs> which right. one I kill. You know? Yeah, right. I mean, it's all about the show, right? And yeah, the challenge. I mean, I, um, his spurs may be an eighth of an inch longer if he's strutting. <laughs> who knows? But that's not going right. to change much. Right. And, and one thing that is important, this a caveat or a context to place this into, is, you know, there's limitations in any study. And one of the limitations of this study is that even if we find that, you know, let's just throw out a number, 90% of our birds that are two years old or older are, you know, reproductively capable. That still doesn't tell us whether or not that bird behaviorally gets opportunities to reproduce. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he may be producing sperm. He may be, you know, just fine in that regard. But because of the presence of another dominant bird, he has not afforded that opportunity. Yeah, which would then lead me to the question of if the dominant is removed, is how quickly does he take that opportunity? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a fantastic question. Yeah. So that, that could see this uh, being a stair-step type study. Yeah. You know, once you find results on this, it will beg another question, which will need to be answered. Yep. Eventually, we'll that's, get to that, the bottom line on it. Right. And, I mean, that's what we refer to in research as job security, right? Yeah. Um, because, <laughs> because wildlife research is such an incremental stepwise process with, you know, each study building on, you know, the previous ones. Yeah. How could a study be set up to show that so that we could learn that you know how long does it take for once that that dominant bird is removed from the landscape how long does it take for a subordinate bird to step up and start taking over right. and breeding 
you know, how, how, I mean, that would be, that'd be a really difficult study. Yeah. I can imagine. And I mean, you know, even, even the best Turkey researchers, you know, when they go out and they, they shoot over birds, you know, you can do a really good job of getting transmitters on a significant portion of the population within any given study area or focal area of capture within that study area, but we're not going to get them all. And you can make some inferences about, you know, the ones that are tagged and how they react when, when a bird is known to be removed from the area. But you can never really guarantee that you had all those birds marked right and, and mm-hmm. necessarily know what happened. And so you, you have to get at it a little bit more indirectly downstream. And that is some of the work that's being done right now. It's all very preliminary and hasn't been wrapped up yet, but there's, there is work going on in other places where, as I mentioned, they're looking further downstream and start and seeing, you know, when we change season date, how does that translate into these vital rates that we measure? You know, the nest success, the nest timing, the poult survival, and so on. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, those are the metrics that you're really interested in. But it's also like going back to the work that we're doing right now with fertility. If you do find that there are significant differences in vital rates that are related back to season date or timing of harvest and things like that, you do want to know as a wildlife biologist, what are the mechanisms that influence that? Because the more information that you have on mechanisms, the more direct your your management can be to target that particular issue. Yeah, yeah. So- I assume Alabama hunters could be expected to produce carcasses again next year? Yes. Yep. We're doing it again this year. And one thing that I also didn't mention that we're doing with those those hunter harvested birds, I mentioned the disease, but we're trying also right now to figure out how to add on a toxicology component to that. And in particularly, we're sending we're looking for a good toxicology lab on conversations right now to send off a portion of all these hunter harvested birds spleens to look at exp- potential exposure to neonicotinoid par- uh, pesticides that are mm-hmm. oftentimes, you know, used by used in farming. You know, they're they're pesticide treated seed, which then that that pesticide becomes systemic throughout the plant, and then turkeys can potentially consume it. And I believe I haven't talked to to him about it in a while, but I believe Mike was doing some of that same work on one of his projects as well. I'm also interested in in maybe seeing if they can look at exposure to aflatoxins as well, you know, that are commonly yeah. found in, in in corn and really any grain feed and see if we can get at exposure rates to that as well. But it seems like it's looking like that's going to be harder to test for. Hmm. What, I guess, to keep it on an elementary level so I can possibly understand it, why why is it that that would be difficult to test? Just not the Andy, methods to over, test for it? Or? I'm not over my skis on that one, too. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and this is, you know, that's why we've, you know, we have to assemble a research team on projects like this one because not everyone has sure. expertise in all these different skill sets when, when you're casting such a wide net with a multi-objective project like this one. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes complete sense. So, but... To that, to that end, I do have um, one of my outstanding undergraduate students right now, we're actually going to start on it this afternoon, going through all of the crops of those hunter harvested birds. And, you know, we can't necessarily tell you whether or not the corn that they ate was, was tainted with aflatoxin, but we will start to get some rates on levels of corn consumption during the hunting season and things like that that'll be informative as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's- I mean, if it's neonic treated corn, you should be able to tell that, right? Because it'll be like neon pink or green. 
does that wash off when they eat it? I'm not sure, Cameron, but, you know, I would think during that time of the year that most of it would be, you know, intentionally placed and it wouldn't be, you know, seed corn that would be, that that had been treated. Yeah, that's true. So how long do you anticipate the study on the testes of the, of the turkeys to to take place until you guys stop that you're gonna you're gonna do it for this upcoming year but that's right any future projections on that so right now all we have planned is two years of carcass collections for that objective okay and i think our sample size will be more than sufficient after those two years to address our primary our primary research questions that i've already named now you know that is contingent on whether or not we could discover something that merits additional sample collection, right? I mean, that's part of the process of research. Yeah. But, you know, we'll be looking at somewhere close to 800 to 1,000 samples of birds from across Alabama, hopefully by the end of next turkey season. And then where the process will look like or, or go, I should say, from there is once the graduate student who's working on that objective, Kevin Ostrander is his name. He's done a fantastic job alongside Matt Day, who's also working on the project. He'll come back to the lab, of course, and start processing those sam- those samples in late summer, early fall, and probably be able to produce those those results in a publication sometime in the following spring or summer. So we're talking about you know the final paper probably coming out around summer of 24. Okay. Yeah, and I would imagine that's not something that really is going to change like for any influencing factor weather you know something like that i mean what you're looking at is is going to be the case no matter what the these right jakes are either sexually viable or they're not you know it's not going to matter if we had a wet spring or a hot spring or anything like that necessarily right so right yeah i wouldn't expect that i mean i guess the one environmental factor that could potentially influence this is you know maybe if you had um maybe if you had you know like a poor mast year like just acorns mm-hmm. are very limited throughout fall and winter jakes go into the breeding season and poor body condition in the spring and i could see that you know generally you know animals and not just turkeys but across wildlife species they have to do a cost benefit analysis on when they're young especially into how many how much resources do I want to expend on somatic growth aka body growth versus reproduction and generally speaking when they're in poor body condition they're going to allocate more resources into body growth at the cost of not participating in reproduction mm-hmm. so I could see that having an influence but you know really in this part of the study we want to we want to up our sample size of jakes we only got a handful of them last year just because Alabama hunters just don't shoot jakes apparently yeah um <laughs> yeah <laughs> we've, we've got we've got that going for us but honestly you know there there are going to be some jakes out there and we see the data from those missouri and texas studies that are fertile and some of them are fertile as early as you know early april um more of them tend to become so the further you get into the reproductive season but we start seeing or at least from the texas study you know that first year where they had a meaningful sample size of jakes it did appear that um there were there was a significant number of them that were fertile at the beginning of april when a lot of the actual copulation events those fertilization events were occurring and those birds were starting to breed 
but even with that, all that being said, at the end of the day, jakes probably don't participate to a significant degree in reproduction just because of those behavioral issues that I mentioned earlier. They're excluded from those opportunities physically, right? Yeah. So yeah. we're focusing more on we're focusing more on the two year old plus birds to see how much variation there is within those age classes. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, if you need some jakes, Tennessee does a great job at killing a lot of them. Come have some of our carcasses that piled up everywhere. But. And it's not just your yeah. out-of-staters either. Yeah, I mean, this is a perfect example of the conundrum that, that those of us face that are hunters and also wildlife researchers or biologists, because on the one hand, it makes me proud that we're that Alabama turkey hunters are harvesting such a small number of jakes. But on the other hand, I need those samples for research. <laughs> yeah. 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 Is is there going to be, and it may be too early to answer this question at this point, but are, are there going to be any more collection points for hunters in Alabama to turn in the carcass? No, that's that's not that's not our plan. Okay. Um, the way. The model that we used last year was actually suggested to me by Tim Gother, who's the director of the Alabama Wildlife Federation. And honestly, I probably would have never come up with it on my own because I didn't think that it would work as well as it did, but it actually worked better. And essentially what we've done is we've developed this network of avid turkey hunters throughout the state. Mm -hmm. And then we send them a packet of collection material. And then it is their responsibility to recruit hunters from within their network to contribute birds to them. And so they, they, those, those individual hunters serve as collection points. Yeah. And then we go around and by we, I mean, my graduate students, Kevin and Matt go around at the end of the season and, and sometimes throughout it, you know, if, if they get a big backlog of turkeys in their freezer and they, they collect those birds from them because, you know, the situation that we were trying to avoid running into is one where, you know, we just have to stop at a million locations all across the state and it just becomes time and cost prohibitive. Sure. Yeah. Have at any point in time, have you thought about possibly failing Kevin and Matt so that they have to stay in and keep keep doing research? <laughs> well, what you do is you trick them into a PhD. <laughs> then that costs money, though, <laughs> or more money. <laughs> that's why I'm sitting here talking to you today, because I got tricked into a PhD, too. There you go. <laughs> There you go. Yeah. Get, get uh, what, three more years of research out of them that way? Right, right. And then, a, and then hopefully four. a career of it as well. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Awesome. So that was very positive and encouraging and sounded great. And I don't mean to bring the rain cloud in, but do we want to move to the Pult production portion of the study? No. Sure. Let's just, uh, it was great having you on, Will. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do this again yeah. sometime. <laughs> Okay, seriously, let's do this. I'm sure most of our listeners, if you're on social media, probably saw the post showing the preliminary results. But yeah. would you mind kind of going back over those for anybody that hasn't heard or seen those? Yeah, that one gained a little traction, I guess. <laughs> oh, yeah, everybody's, everybody's um, ready to yeah, share so, that one for sure. So I'm, I'm, it, give, it gives me cause, our results give me cause for concern. But I don't look at it as the sky is falling because I look at it in the proper context. And that's that, you know, it's one year of data from a relatively limited sample size of 20 yeah. hands, right? Yeah. And that's how everyone should look at this. It should, it should, you know, when you have a really poor production year at the study area scale, you should say, oh, well, you know, things aren't going great, but it doesn't necessarily mean that population is headed for extinction next year. 
right? Yeah. So, like I said, we monitored a total of 20 hens last year. We had only two nests that successfully hatched, so 10% nest success, which for context is about, you know, half to a third of what is commonly being reported in a lot of these southeastern studies in the modern era. And then of those two nests that hatched, no poult survived. And so on the balance sheet, you know, we produced a net balance of zero poults in the, as part of this study this year. And interestingly, I'm sure you guys saw this too, as well as many of your listeners, but similar results were also reported from a study in Oklahoma, as well as a study in Iowa this year, I believe. You talked about the small sample size being of 20 hens, but mm-hmm. am I wrong in saying that also that sample is from the same geographical area? It is. Okay. So then we could say, essentially, if we don't want to just look at the negative part of that, we could say, hey, in this pocket, in this Mm -hmm. county, we had a bad hatch or no nests Mm -hmm. and a bad hatch on top of that. Yeah, yeah, definitely the more granular scale that you look at the data through, the more applicable it probably is. You know, what we try to be careful about is expanding the the inferences that we make from a data set beyond the scope of that, what that data set is actually capable of addressing. You know, so you wouldn't want to take our results and apply it to the entire state of Alabama, much less the Southeast. I think, you know, that's kind of what you're asking, right, Andy? Yeah, pretty much. And And I think that we as humans and we as hunters are really good at doing that. Taking that little bit of negative news in a very small scale from one geographic area and saying, oh, well, the hatch in Alabama sucked this year. And yeah. That just can't be done. Right. Yeah. You know? And I mean, as a, as a perfect case in point related to that, you know, I've seen a bunch of anecdotal stories. You know, they're anecdotes, so take them with a grain of salt. But of a lot of turkey hunters that are reporting, you know, seeing more pulse this year than they have in a long time. And then I also had a conversation with Adam Butler the other day, who's, you know, the head turkey biologist for the state of Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And he was saying that it looked like last year the the poult per hen ratios that they recorded are indicative of being in the top three of their best hatch years since he's been keeping track of it. Yeah. So, yeah, highly, highly encouraging. But, you know, going back to our data set, that's why we do this stuff for multiple years and um, we have to accumulate those sample sizes over time. And, you know, really in accordance with that, I got to I got to give a shout out and, and applaud the funding agencies re- that are involved in this project for stepping up again. But they contributed an additional round of funding, primarily from, again, Turkeys for Tomorrow and Alabama Wildlife Federation and NWTF all came in to expand this project out and purchase additional GPS transmitters that we're going to be deploying again this spring. That's Fantastic. Did all the hens survive? So we had, trying to recall, yeah, I'm almost, yeah, there was, the reason I had to think about it for a second is I know that we recovered one backpack, but that was due to an attachment, an issue with the way that it was attached, and that hen slipped that backpack transmitter. And so to the best of my knowledge, yes, all the hens did survive, which is, which is really great, but um, it's a little bit unusual. I'm surprised that they all did, because and maybe, and maybe it's because they all lost, or all but, you know, 90% of them lost their nests, so they weren't incubating very long, and that's the period where they're most vulnerable, so that may have had something to do with it. And how many of them did you say attempted to nest, sorry? Of the um, it was two. It was 80% attempted to nest. Okay. So, uh, eight, yeah. was it 16, 18, something like that? Yeah, that's right. So that's actually 
actually pretty good. So they're they at least yeah. tried. I mean, so that's yeah. That's a question that's, I've wondered is like, are a lot of our hens just not even going for it anymore? Like they're just trying. No, to that doesn't seem to be the case. The numbers that come to mind for me across, you know, and it varies a little bit from one study to another, but I think it's pretty consistent to see that about seventy-five to eighty percent of your hens are going to attempt to nest from the modern data that we have. So that part's not the problem. It's what happens at that point. <laughs> sure. Exactly. Is there any data, and if not, is there any way to to know this when you guys are trapping these birds? Is there any data as to how many of those 20 were first-year hens or jennies, as we like to call them? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So we can, we can age them by their wing barring, you know, mm-hmm. just like okay. you can, just like you can with a tom. But we had we had no jennies in our sample, okay. and that's a pretty common thing that we're seeing across a lot of these research uh, projects because recruitment's just so low that you know the ratio of juveniles to adults in the population is really low um, accordingly. So, oh, so it wasn't not... it wasn't necessarily that you didn't want to put backpacks on jennies. You just yeah. you guys probably exactly. just didn't get any to put on them. Dang, that's there are they're just. There just aren't many available in the population. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that got, at first I was like, oh, good job. They only yeah. went for the adults. And then, yeah. <laughs> then it sank in that that wasn't purposeful. And then thanks for right. raising my parade. Yeah. <laughs> right. More bad news. Not only did none of the 20 make another one, there were none from past years either. So. <laughs> right. Right. Great. But but one thing that I'm going to be really interesting, really interested to see from this data going forward is we're switching over to a new transmitter this year compared to last year. And these transmitters are definitely capable of collecting two years of reproductive data, and they may even be capable of going three years. Now, at that point, I start to get concerned about, you know, physical damage to the unit from being out in the elements for so long. and mm-hmm. You know, you could even get some dry rotting of the, the shock cord that we use to attach the transmitters and things like that. But um, at least getting that those two years is going to be really insightful because that allows us to start collecting data on um, trends and kind of like more more like lifetime fecundity. So understanding, you know, which hens are successful and are they successful in, in um, consecutive years and things like that, which Mike has already started to produce some data on and uh, Brett Collier at LSU has already started to produce some data on that as well. And not just with turkeys, but also there's some emerging data in white-tailed deer too, but we're finding more and more for a lot of these wild species that there are a handful of good mothers, let's call them, in the population that produce more young and do so more times, more frequently throughout their lifetime. And so, I mean, that's really fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally agree with that statement. Yeah, that's interesting. Do yeah. you know and are you able to share what happened to said nests? Were most of them predated or are they just abandoned? Do we know that? Yeah, yeah, it was it was all predation in this study. Every single one of them? Yeah, there were a couple there were a couple that they, it was undetermined slash likely predation, but so they were they were a little bit more gray area on a couple of those nests, but they were all likely predation. And, you know, that's something that, that's something that is, is not atypical from these studies. Yeah. Is it possible to be able to tell that like the nest was predated while the hen was still actively attending it? Or is it possible that the hen abandoned it and then it got predated five days later because it's just sitting there? Like, is it possible to tell? Yeah, good question. So 
Yes, to an extent, because, you know, we can see in the GPS data, we're collecting positions frequently enough, you know, in a lot of cases, every 30 minutes to one hour throughout the 24 hour period. And so if we are running checks on those transmitters frequently enough, and by checks, I mean, we're going out, we're remotely downloading downloading the data from a few hundred yards away and then you know pulling those 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 waypoints up on the computer and if we catch it fast enough we can see you know she was on the nest yesterday she's not today and then we show up and we see that the the eggs were depredated then it's pretty safe to assume that 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 occurred while she was still on the nest but sometimes there's a longer time lag there and then of course you know your uncertainty in assigning predation as the ultimate cause of the loss of that nest becomes a little bit less certain and just just because you know i think you probably do have a lot of instances of maybe not a lot but you do have some instances of nest abandonment prior to predation yeah i've I've always wondered that you know we got on a four-wheeler, ran by her, and blew her off yeah. the nest, and she never comes back. Then exactly. a dude finds it seven days later and eats it, then he gets chalked up as predating it, but maybe it wouldn't happen if that hadn't happened. But exactly, it's not particularly the case. Were you able, I don't know, was was it possible to identify what predated the nest mostly? Was it the raccoons, yeah, the, the birds, snakes? Right. Yeah, so the water gets even more murky there just simply because you don't necessarily know if there are multiple. So you could have an initial predation event, and then that could be followed by a scavenging event, right? And so, you know, it's a chicken and an egg thing or a turkey and an egg thing, if you will. You know, like we talked about earlier, Cameron, I am working on my dad jokes, so there was one for you. (laughs) Um, But, but, you know, it's, it's hard to know, you know, which one was the proximate cause and which one was the ultimate cause of the loss that nest who 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 was showing up the most <laughs> i guess is my question i, don't I mean if you're gonna drag an answer ultimate. out of me I, if you're if you're dra- gonna drag an answer out of me on this you know it's raccoons are almost always implicated as the top one all right well that makes me feel better because i'm i'm on a coon killing mission this year so. <laughs> i've noticed that i've noticed that will you guys are not disturbing these nests by even getting within a couple hundred yards of them to put a camera on them or anything like that you're just getting within a couple hundred yards to get the data off the backpack and then you're moving on to the next area is that right right. yeah okay yeah i mean so usually the situation is is that you know hens nesting out in um in a forested area somewhere and you're just driving on a road on the outer fringe of that that forested stand and getting like you said within a few hundred yards and remotely downloading that data because you know the solution to a lot of these issues that we're talking about with uncertainty and and what led to the ultimate fate of that nest could be solved by setting up cameras but then you have the disturbance that goes along with that right. you can expect you can expect uh, abandonment rate due to that disturbance if you were to go in and set up cameras of probably somewhere around 15% or so. Yeah, yeah. And after going through the work to get backpacks on birds, you don't even want to lose 15% of your data for that, do you? Right. And especially yeah. if you're researching a declining population. Yeah, I mean, each of those hens becomes more valuable. And especially if you think about what I was talking about earlier, where we're finding out more and more that there's a small percentage of the female population in turkeys. And, and turkeys and other species that are producing a lot of the recruited birds, you know, each one of those hens' reproductive contribution in a given year becomes more and more important, you know. And so if you happen to cause that hen that raises at least one poult every year to abandon her nest, you know, she could renest 
but we know re-nest attempts are less successful mm-hmm. than initial nesting attempts. So that, that could potentially be a big loss for that population. Yeah. Was there any, I mean, I assume y'all are also keeping track of what type of habitat the hens are choosing to nest in. Oh yeah, absolutely. So yeah. yeah, our protocol for that is once the nest fails or hatches, you know, we're going in within a couple day period and taking a series of really detailed vegetation measurements around the nest bowl and radiating out away from that as well. Very interesting. That's awesome. Yeah. Are they mostly nesting in grasslands, woodlands, old fields? Was there anything kind of like that? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of all over the place. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, they um, seem like they'll just nest anywhere. <laughs> yeah, it, it does seem like that. It, it definitely does. But, you know, they tend, we don't have enough data really to address that yet, but I will point your listeners to a good study that was recently completed by Dr. Craig Harper up at the University of Tennessee and, and several other, I think he worked with Dr. Dave Bueller up there too, as well as several graduate students. And a result that he recently shared with me when we were having a conversation is that in the part of Tennessee that they were working in, I think it was only somewhere around the neighborhood of, I think, I want to say it was 12 to 15 percent of the landscape was in these relatively early successional vegetation types that hens tend to select for nesting and brood rearing. But they found that I think it was uh, over 60 percent of the nests were located in those areas. And so Uh this is a very scarcely available habitat resource across the landscape that is highly selected for by these hens. And they also documented that the that the nests that were located within those areas were were more likely to be successful as well. That's pretty interesting stuff. And you said that study's complete, so we can go online and find the, the paper on that study. Uh, I think those results are published. And I think, I'm trying to trying to recall i shared that one on my instagram i know a while back it may have just been on a story so it's not available anymore okay and then i know that marcus lashley dr disturbance who i think you guys may have had on before he shared it as well but i don't know what format he shared it in so uh, but he did have a link to it at one point in time okay all right yeah if you follow up with me if you follow up with me i'm happy to share it share it with you i will certainly do that because i would love to read that and i'm sure Several of our readers would be interested in that as well, so we can post that. I know Cameron will share it on his IG account. I'll do the same on mine, and yeah. you know, we'll make that available and try to get that some some at least shares out there and get it some traction to get more right. hands. Because absolutely, and one other thing, I'll go ahead and share from that study right now too. And I I don't know if this portion of it because you got to realize that this was a this was a large multi-objective study kind of like the one we're talking about that I'm working on in Alabama right now too so yeah. these often get published in phases and when we have conversations about it you know I don't know when, when Craig like Craig for instance tells me something I don't know if he put this information in this paper or that paper that was published off the same project right, so yeah. it does get mixed up but he did also share that 12% of the nest that they lost in that study were lost due to mowing uh-huh Yep. Yeah. Yep. And so these are, you know, this was in, I'm pretty sure that the area that he was talking about was kind of in that South Central Tennessee region, you know, very pastoral, lots of pastures and hay fields. Mm. And, you know, you've got these guys going out and bush hogging during the nesting season and running over a bunch of these nests. And so Marcus and I were actually talking about this the other day. And we, we were like, imagine if you could add a 12% increase to the nest success on your property just by doing nothing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow. 
That's exactly right. That's something that we even mention on this show, you know, time of year is, hey, if you don't have to cut, if you're not making money off of hay or feeding your critters off of hay, which eventually is making money off of hay, don't cut. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It it looks bad for a couple of months, but man, it can make a big difference. And I would even say, you know, being a guy that focuses a lot on habitat management too, is even if you are making your money off of, you know, you're cutting forage hay or, or grazing, maybe take some of those less productive edge areas of those pastures or those hay fields and allow those to grow up in better early successional habitat than just out in the pasture for turkeys to nest in and brood in and have them preferentially nesting in those areas instead of being out in your pasture where you have to worry about it. Yeah. Yeah, that's precisely what we've done with one of our farms for bobwhite quail that we've kept. Yeah. The the farm is, it's an agriculture farm. The purpose of the farm is to produce agriculture and money. But we've taken the edges around the whole farm that are the least productive for crops and put in CRP, you know, type grasses and and stuff. And we have a ton of quail out there now. And we still are farming that that farm. And I mean, it's, it's incredible. So, and yeah, and I mean, Bob white quail are hard to come by these days. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, if, if you think about it, everybody that farms or just owns land that they manage and enjoy, you all, everybody has areas that they know. It's like from one year to the next, this area always, you know, performs poorly, doesn't grow much. Yep. Or this area is frustrating because it's always too wet to work with the tractor. Yeah. You know, these are the types of areas that we're talking about taking advantage of. Mm-hmm. That's it. And it, I mean, I've seen it firsthand. We had, we hunted out there with bird dogs and everything three, four years ago and had 0.00 quail on the farm. And right. last year we had eight coveys and this year we're projected to have even more. That's awesome. Uh, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing what that'll do. And it, it really, you know, it's, I think they're 50 fit, 50 foot wide strips. Right. It's not, not a huge amount of space. Right. And they're probably in the tree line too, or like right up against the yeah. tree line in a lot of cases. So that's what those it, trees tree are already lines. competing for water and everything with your crop. And Yeah, that, that's what it is. There's tree lines. So we have 50 feet off the tree lines. We topped most of the trees so that the sunlight even gets into the tree line now. Mm-hmm. And so that's thick in there. So you technically have probably like 100 feet wide of, of thickness for the pile yeah. to be in, which is plenty. Yep. Absolutely. I come in there and I've wrecked every coon and possum that's ever stepped foot on the place, and that helps too, I think. But right, <laughs> it has been. Yeah. A, but you make a great point with that. You know, if you have to mow, try to leave the edges, maybe you know, for at least a right. little longer, or, or anything yep. like that can help in, in a mass capacity. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about the other. The I guess maybe not the last aspect, but the other big aspect of the studies going on the gobbling chronology across the state mm-hmm. i was shocked by those results to be honest I, <laughs> I i understand it will probably be multiple years and so maybe there right. will be some change to that but yeah man, i just can't believe the ones down there in gulf shores alabama are gobbling at the exact same time that the ones touching tennessee up here are starting and finishing i know but that's what it I showed. <laughs> yeah so i could see how it'd be a little bit surprising at first to to hear the result that there wasn't much difference in goblin chronology or timing from north to south Alabama. But, you know, we have data 
you know, going back decades, you know, comparing, not necessarily directly comparing, but you can pull papers from the Northeast and the Southeast and look at timing of nesting and other reproductive behaviors um, during the spring. And, you know, across even that range, the timing of that reproductive period only changes a few weeks. So within the context of that, it would be a little bit surprising, even though I know that, you know, it's, it's tradition to believe that even in, you know, the Southeastern states that, that you have a a, a lot of latitudinal variation in timing of gobbling. And there were even some states going back several years that conducted these, what I'd refer to as manned point counts, where, you know, you actually had graduate students and other researchers going out on a daily basis to different points and recording all the gobbles that they heard. But of course, the problem with that is, you know, you're only one person, or maybe you have a research team of three or four people, and you're limited in terms of how many sites that you can hit in any given day. But, you know, in these studies that like the one that we're doing right now in Alabama and then all the ones that Mike has done and several others have done as well. We've got, you know, large numbers of this unit, these units, like last year we had 80 in Alabama that were listening every single day, every single morning. And as you get that finer resolution in your data, it starts to, you know, challenge some of the things that we used to think were obvious and apparent. I just, like, I can't wrap my head around it because I'm like, why do people start shooting turkeys in South Florida in the end of February? They don't Mm -hmm. start till May in Maine, you know, so it's... Yeah. There obviously has to be, at some point, I guess, a difference. let me... (laughs) Yeah, and I'm going to stick my neck out and you either cut it off with the cleaver or... Say, hey, there may be something to this, Will. Okay. So you mentioned it earlier in this phone call. Dr. Chamberlain's mentioned it, I'm going to say, probably almost every single time he's been on the show, mm-hmm. that the hens are receptive to breeding based primarily on, or the timing of when they're receptive to breeding is based primarily on their health. And I would imagine South Florida, because you are never going to have two feet of snow on the ground, Mm-hmm. their hen health probably doesn't vary a whole lot. They're going to be, you know, from January 1 to December 31, their body weight and body health is probably going to be very similar during that entire time period. But you take an area like, we'll just say Northern Maine, for example, or the UP in Michigan, and depending on that winter, the hen's health can take a significant hit and so Mm -hmm. they're not going to be ready to breed until later in the year and i'm wondering if that has something possibly to do with it right right yeah i mean it potentially (laughs) it it definitely potentially could um man that's a way of saying something it definitely potentially (laughs) but yeah like a scientist right that's right that's a (laughs) scientist or a a politician i don't know yeah no no definite answers here it definitely potentially could possibly be that (laughs) i think that that could be at play andy but remember also that breeding is definitely influenced by the health of the hen you know timing of reproduction is going to be influenced by the health of the hen what body condition she's in going into that season but then it's primarily driven by photo period, right? Mm-hmm. So that's playing a role as well. And, you know, across extremes, uh, as, as geographically different as South Florida and Northern Maine, to use your example, you know, you, the photo period and the timing of day length is much different. And, it, you know, you're talking about tropics to almost basically up to Canada. Yeah. And so that's that's having that's having an influence as well. But within that normal timing that is influenced by photo period, 
individual health will also come into play. Yeah. So years ago, I looked this up because I had Bob, oh gosh, what is his name? The um, Dr. Tom for the NWTF. Is it Erickson? No. What's what's his last name? The biologist up in Pennsylvania. But anyway, I had I'm him. I'm blanking on, too. What's that? I'm blanking too. Okay. So I had him on the show and we started talking about the length of the daylight period from north right. to south. And if you look at it and... I'm not, this has been years ago. I'm not going to remember the exact date and I have not pulled it back up. So I'm just shooting off the hip here just to give an example. But if you look at that time period or the, I should say the, on the calendar, the date on the calendar when the amount of daylight period, daylight, or excuse me, sunrise to sunset Mm -hmm. in central Alabama equals the same length of time from sunrise to sunset in central Pennsylvania, it's like mid, early to mid April. Mm -hmm. So there's not, when we're talking about the spring season, there's not a huge difference at that point once the season gets, Mm -hmm. gets started, you know, gets going. Mm -hmm. There's not a big difference in, in that amount of sunlight. Maybe it's got something to do with the fact that the days, the the period of daylight in the north is increasing at a more rapid rate than it does in the south Maybe, as we warm up but, in, or get into the spring. Sure, but another thing that, and this is a this is a complicated issue because you've got many interaction factors, right? Oh yeah. And and another one of those that comes into play is that we know the temperature during spring can affect you know timing of nesting too. Mm-hmm. And so you know with with colder springs nesting generally tends to move back a little bit and of course you know your spring would just almost every every single year it's hard to imagine a year where it wouldn't be colder in a place like pennsylvania versus alabama during that time of the year sure so that's going to play a role as well yeah Yeah. and for anybody who wants to see the graph of what we're talking about with the goblin chronology it's on your instagram correct Mm -hmm. yep and so you can see the chart of the variation in weekly gobbling from north, middle, and south Alabama. Yeah, it's really it's fascinating to me. I, I and I and I will I will caveat that two ways, Cameron. One is that you know all we've done so far is just a visual analysis, if you will. Basically, that's a science science way of saying we looked at it, <laughs> and you know we haven't done any formal statistical analysis yet to see if there's you know maybe a little bit of the difference in the the standard deviation around the mean or something like that from one of these regions to the other. That's that'll be forthcoming. And then there were also a couple of sites that we had not finished um, at that point in time, going back and verifying all the gobbles that weren't added in. But even when we do that, I, I expect the general train to or the general trend, I'm sorry, to remain pretty consistent. Yeah. I mean, judging, by, judging by that chart, you want to be somewhere in Alabama, March 28th to 20, around March 25th or around April 15th. <laughs> no, you don't. Yeah. You don't I mean, want that, to be in Alabama. March, yeah, that March 25th week was really good. And that's one interesting thing that, that I've noticed just from our data and then also talking to other turkey hunters across the state over the past year or so is that, you know, with the new delayed season opening that just went into effect this past spring season in Alabama, I had several hunters, you know, we, we typically, when we think about that, we think about it, you know, as trying to increase reproductive output for the reasons that we talked about earlier in this podcast. But another thing that we don't think about as often is it may be possible in some states that we could be hunting before gobbling even really peaks. And the problem with that is that we know that 
that hunting pressure starts to re- result in that gobbling activity decreasing. So if we know that that's going to happen regardless of when we start hunting the bird, maybe it does make sense to wait in areas where we have data that shows that the season is opening before that peak. Maybe we should wait until that peak occurs and it could result in an overall better hunter experience as well. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. That whole thing, that was very interesting to me. I've, I've got to tell you, I've, I've had a lot of preconceived notions that were false based on that chart. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it does tend to, you know, kind of circling back to what I mentioned earlier is it does tend to be the case that the more states that we have this high resolution data from that there's very little difference in timing of gobbling from the northern to the southern part of the state. I mean, if that's the case and it, you know, bears out over multi years that that's true, then makes it a lot easier for states setting season schedules. (laughs) Sure, sure. I'll tell you what really fascinated me the most about that study is that you found turkeys that gobble in Alabama. <laughs> the, the big spikes was the one turkey gobbled twice on the roost. Those were the big weeks. <laughs> That's the ground that I hunt. That one turkey gobbled three times. Man, that was a good day. Yeah. They did drumming data. They would get a lot more of the audio yeah. from them, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Man, this has been fun. I I could keep you on the phone all day. I know you don't want to stay on the phone with me all day, but this this has been awesome. I I do have a question to go back to the to the nesting study that you guys are doing. So, mm-hmm. is the funding for that one going to be something that's year to year as well? And how long ideally would you want that study to go on? Right. If you had funding indefinitely for it. Right. Yeah, so um, at this point in time, it is just a year-to-year funding basis that we're on. We don't have a multi-year contract established, but like I said, we we will be putting out GPS transmitters this year that should collect two seasons of data, data. So, you know, we should have three at that point, including last year. It really depends, Andy, on, on what trends we start to see in the data. You know, if we if things pop up that were unexpected or interesting that we feel like we need to collect data a little bit differently to address, then that's when you would want to think about expanding it further. Mm -hmm. But, you know, at this point in time, I feel like, you know, if we can get three or four good years of data on these sites that we'll start to get a pretty good handle on, you know, what's going on reproductively in that population. Now, as far as whether or not we wanted to expand that study out geographically, that's when, you know, you would want to try to seek additional funding to keep that work going because i mean you just this, it takes a lot of effort to collect data on one microcosm within a state yeah and so oftentimes it's going to take multiple studies over a longer period of time to start to get higher resolution data that applies to different portions of the state you know going back to our our, our conversation or part of our conversation earlier where i was talking about being careful extrapolating data from that study area across the state or even across the region which hunters love to do, as you mentioned. And so to, to address that question, that's what it takes is, is data from a broader geographic scope. Yeah. Okay. And then I've got one more question. I think it'd be a pretty easy one to answer. I know that Marcus Lashley accepts private donations for the research projects they have going on. Chamberlain accepts mm-hmm. private donations for some of the research projects they have going on. Are you guys accepting mm-hmm. private donations? And if so, how do we give? Yeah, so we have um, we have an Auburn University Foundation account set up that those uh, those donations are tax deductible that they can be made to, 
And the best way to give to my research program here at Auburn is to contact Heather Crozier. Her last name is spelled C-R-O-Z-I-E-R. And you can find her in our staff directory on our website. So if you just go to search for Auburn University College of Forestry and Wildlife, it's actually College of Forestry, Wildlife, and Environment, but Forestry and Wildlife will get you there to our webpage. Go to the staff directory, look up Heather Crozier, and uh, just shoot her an email, and she'd be happy to help you out. Okay. All right. Excellent. Well, you know, I would encourage the listeners to do that because this information, this number one, the show wouldn't happen today without money. The research, you know, funding the research that Dr. Goolsby's doing, and, you know, it, it can't keep going you know, they can't keep Absolutely. doing research without some dollars. And so, especially if they're, you know, tax deductible dollars, I like, I like that right. even better. <laughs> there you go. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the, it's the part of my job that I like the least asking for money, but it is absolutely a necessary part. Hey, you don't have to ask. I'll ask for you. You just say when. <laughs> I appreciate that. Money. Yeah. <laughs> well, man, this has been awesome. And I, I really appreciate the time and, and you sharing the information from these studies and, and heck, just doing the studies and, and all that, yeah. that you do to, to learn more about this bird to help us so that we can try to manage and conserve it better. So thank you. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, I appreciate you guys having me on to get the word out again and how dedicated you guys are to trying to get as much information out there as possible. I mean, I think that we're in this new era of wildlife research where we have these new platforms like podcasts and it it enables us to reach the hunters and inform them in a way that we never had before. And just trying to, you know, it's hard to incorporate that into everything else we've got going on. I mean, we're talking, we're thinking about turkeys here 24 seven, either collecting data on them in the current year in the field season or analyzing it when we come out or or preparing to go back out again you know so fitting it in can be challenging sometimes but i think it's super valuable because you know i really feel like especially passionate hunters are more informed than they ever have been yeah i agree thanks will thank you i hope you have you and your family have a great thanksgiving and christmas season as well and hopefully we'll get you back on again sometime soon and talk some more turkey yeah same to you guys love to do it all right buddy have a great day you too all right goodbye part of that talk had my bottom lip poked out pretty far yeah i mean the overall theme of it encouraged me though because we're gonna find answers and i have after just talking with dr goolsby all the confidence in the world in these biologists to, to do good things for us yeah well a lot of attention on wild turkeys right now as there should be and it's you know, it's a shame, and I think that Mike and I, Mike Chamberlain and I have talked about this in the past. It's a shame that it took this long for there to, for there to be this much focus on yeah. the turkeys. But we're here now, and they are getting a lot of attention, and there's nothing bad that's going to come of that, yeah. research-wise. So That's it. Yeah. And uh, I think just, you know, for me, especially the goblin chronology one, granted it's only one year, same thing with the poult thing terrible results but it's one year but the goblin chronology one from north to south totally not what i would have put money on but it's only one year so we'll see if that trend continues because i'm obviously still skeptical but i am very intrigued (laughs) i am too absolutely because you know that's something that you and i've talked about on this show before when we talked you know i i me specifically i can talk about me you know said well I really think Alabama needs to have a split season because the southern part of the state, 
the birds are gobbling earlier than the northern part of the state. Well, I'm obviously not the only one who is wondering about that. And now we have yeah, some data to say, yeah, maybe not. Maybe not. Yeah. So it's maybe cool. It's not the case. Yeah. That's what's so fun it's, about this, you know? Yeah. And you got to be, you got to go into it. Obviously, we all have our preconceived notions, and usually they make logical sense, but I'm open to what the science says. If I can tell it was a sound study and disproves what I truly believe, then I'll reconsider, you know? Yeah. It's, it's an interesting time, and so it's going to be a lot of research to be done, and hopefully we get answers and that's that's bottom line but shocked that every single nest loss was to predation i mean yeah. that's pretty pretty impressive stuff yeah and w- what there were two poults hatched from those nests and both of those died isn't that yeah yeah i think two different nests hatched one poult yeah and both of them died so yeah that's bad that's I mean, bad. It's just bad. Well, and then, you know, I, I, when you look at it, and I mentioned this in the interview with Will, you know, we're taking a ver- an extremely small sample size in a yeah, yeah. very isolated pocket of wild turkey country. And, you know, it's not fair to us to say, well, this entire area had a bad hatch because... That's probably not true. You you could probably go two or three properties over from where this study was done and the data was gathered, and they may have very well had a good hatch and yeah, good recruitment. Especially, especially if they were trapping. Bingo. <laughs> that, there's a lot of truth to that. So, <laughs> you know, we have to be tempered in our reaction when we see something like that. Of course, no none of us want to see or hear that zero poults out of 20 hens survived not they produced not one poult that is alive today we don't want to hear that but you know that was that's the part we have to stay optimistic about but then again you know you hear him say hey this has been ongoing you know so every year we have fewer hens and because we're having fewer jennies we have fewer hens to even get backpacks on to even do the research on. That's the extremely concerning part to me. But yeah. Hey, you can't no doubt. you can't turn it around if you don't start studying it and hopefully that's where we're going. So Absolutely. Well, I'll take the favor of the week this week. All right. So favor of the week this week is going to be help the wild turkey in some capacity. You have many avenues for this. Donate to somebody like Goolsby or Lashley or Chamberlain, donate to a project. If you don't have the time to do it or you want to see research done, send money to the people doing it. If you want to spend time doing something, go trap, go make poult habitat, go make nesting habitat, if that's a thing. But listen to those Lashley podcasts. Do something, you know. If It's going to take everybody. A little bit of effort goes a long way when a lot of people do it. And I was reading The Great American Wild Turkey by Henry Davis, probably one of the best turkey books ever written, very important book in the history of the wild turkey, as it kind of motivated a lot of people to notice that this bird was worth keeping on the landscape. And they were in a very similar predicament back then as we are now, except much worse. They had way fewer birds. Mm -hmm. So he concluded that book in his last chapter. He said, I appeal to all lovers of the greatest of all game birds to arouse from the stupor in which they have fallen and give this bird a hand. There's your favor of the week. Give the bird a hand. That is 
perfect. You know, yeah. after the, I can't say the past couple of episodes because really the Lashley episode was two parts. So, you know, after the last three episodes, uh, I think that that's just a great favor of the week. And, you know, that quote that you read there is just spot on. We're not going to make any progress if, the, excuse me, the wild turkey is not going to make any progress in turning the population around if we do sit around and do nothing. So if we yeah. don't have time to give, we can scrounge a few dollars. And literally, you know, if you've just got a few dollars, man, every little bit helps. But There's a lot of turkey hunters out there, so a few yeah. dollars from every one of them goes a long way, or a few hours of labor goes a long way. Bingo. So. Yep. If you don't if you don't have a few dollars and you find that you've got some time, go put that time into your habitat, whether that's trapping predators or improvements, just like Cameron said. So that was awesome. Good job. Yeah. Good deal. Well, y'all do that. We got 165 predators down on our place now. It's been a nice. possum whacking here lately. <laughs> so pretty much all possums lately? Literally all possums. I don't know what's going on, but 21 possums like in the past couple weeks man i don't know i don't know i think maybe we've killed all the coons to be honest and now i don't know why there's so many possums all of a sudden though they're they're going nuts hmm. but we'll take them too i after seeing i mean the the property we're catching most of the possums on is not very big and has hardly any woods and the fact that we've killed 21 possums out of there they absolutely would be a limiting factor for that property yeah because i mean there's no way one of them isn't walking past a quail or turkey nest with how few nesting areas there are. Have you started on your possum bikini for Audrey for the trip? <laughs> no, I've not. I did run the idea of making a possum blanket fire. That didn't seem to go too well. I don't think she wants anything possum in the house. I think a possum bikini for her and a possum speedo for you with the tail on. Yeah, see, that was what I, I was going to do a possum skin hat, just like the coon skin hat, but leave the possum tail on. That That's sexy hot. Yeah, you should definitely yeah. do one of those. But you'll want to you'll want to use that when you get back home where, you know, it's a little cooler. Yeah, that'll be my new trapping hat. <laughs> Put three or four possums on there, leave all their tails. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, a possum dreads by the end of oh, it. That'd be awesome, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Oh, we'll conclude with that. Yes, we will. <laughs> we'll end. We'll end this show on a on a low note. <laughs> <laughs> a weird, weird humor note. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. We know that you have choices. We appreciate you spending your time with us. We hope you have a wonderful week, and we look forward to seeing you again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe for free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews to help you have a more successful turkey season. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes on Hunting Afternoon Birds, how to film your hunt, and the breeding cycle of hens, as well as some guest interviews. Thanks again for listening. We know your time is valuable, and we appreciate you sharing some of it with us. See you next week.